Well, good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much, those who are on site, for braving the, I don't want to call it too cold, because we got a ways to go yet in this winter, but definitely for braving the roads and the snow. So thank you for joining us here. And for those of us who are joining online, thank you as well for taking the time in your homes and in your lives to be with us here today, too. Over the last number of weeks, we've been working our way through a series called Your Blueprint to a New Life with Jesus where we're working to build a bit of a definition, but also a model of discipleship. And it's, it's my hope that as we go through each of these steps and definitions, that, that you'll be able to find the possibility where whether you are new to the faith or have been living for generations in a relationship with Jesus, that you'll be able to find the ways that you can have a deeper awareness of the difference that he makes in a person's life but also that this would help us to understand what would it look like, maybe today or, or a day down the road, what would it look like for you to lead somebody else to experience new life in Jesus for themselves? We start doing this by talking about a definition for discipleship. And the definition we've been using is that a, a, a disciple is somebody who is following Christ, being changed by Christ, and committed to the mission of Christ. And then last week, we started to build upon that by looking at the method by which Jesus and the early church used to, to kind of make that a reality, to take it from words on a page to actions in life, which again, gives us instructions, sort of a model to follow on how we could replicate that in our own lives and in the lives of other people. And I suggested last week we can break that down, even though volumes have been written on this, and I'm not trying to oversimplify, uh, but I wanted to break it down to four specific words or steps that we're going to take time to focus upon. And, and the four words were share, connect, minister, and disciple. And then last week we talked about the first one, uh, about share, about sharing our lives in a way that reveals God's love and opens opportunities for us to then share the good news of Jesus Christ with people. Now, there are those who will, who will not positively respond to that. As we know in the world, not everyone is obligated to say yes just because we share the good news of Jesus with them. But by the presence of the many online and on site and around the world, we know that every day thousands of people do respond positively. And when we share our lives in a way that reveals God, that they are invited to respond to, and people respond positively by saying yes to Jesus, he then invites them to connect. That's the second word in this model we're going to look at today. He invites them to connect in relationship. Now, in relationship with him, where a person continually throughout a lifetime grows in their knowledge about Jesus and salvation and, and life with him now and life with him in the world to come. But also invites people to connect with other followers of Jesus Christ. Because, you see, the Christian journey was never meant to be a solo mission. It was meant to be done in community. And so today as we talk about this word connect, I want to suggest to you that connecting in relationship is the vehicle that God uses, the vehicle God designed for the discipleship journey. Now the word journey is sometimes used, often used, as a bit of a metaphor for the Christian life. And like any journey, we can break that down into components. For example, in a journey you may go on, you'll have a destination in mind. And for our case and what we're talking about here today, we could say that our destination ultimately is heaven, but between now and then we're journeying towards Christ, growing in maturity of our awareness of him. 
We're growing in our unity of faith with other people. We're going to talk more about that next week, focused on like Ephesians 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 13. So there's a destination in mind. But there's also a route or a map we need to follow. And you could say that Jesus has marked that out by us walking in the footsteps of Jesus and in the example of the early church. They've kind of already blazed the trail that we can follow. And that's some of the basis for which we're looking at this blueprint for new life with Jesus that we have in this series. But have you ever thought about the vehicle? Because you need a means of transportation on any journey. Have you ever thought about the vehicle that would go along with that journey? And it's an important question. Because the vehicle you choose for your journey will determine a lot about your journey. For example, if you were to open up, if you open up your phones and turn on Google Maps, it'll ask you to put in a destination. It'll ask you to confirm your location, to give you directions for your journey. But did you know that if you look in the settings area, you can also choose the means of transportation. You can choose the means by which you're going to journey. For example... If you choose uh, the bike option, it will route your plan, your path, using trails and parks and all sorts of shortcuts that certain vehicles can't access. If you choose to plot your course by transit, it will tell you which stations and which trains and which buses to use to get from where you are to where you need to go. And if you choose the traffic one, the most common kind of default setting, it will use the main roads to get you where you need to go. The vehicle you choose makes a difference. The settings you choose makes a difference. Before Google Maps, some of us may have had those GPSs on the dashboards in the cars. Anybody have those? I used to have one. I didn't use it a lot around town, and I didn't use it on long trips a lot because I knew where I was going. In terms, I didn't use it anyways in terms of directions. But here's what I did like. When we go on long trips, I did like the guy stats that it would share with me. And so I'd always have it turned on so that I could see, for example, you know, what's our driving time? Are we making good time? It's kind of a dad thing, right? I'd want to know what is my average speed that I'm, I'm having. And I'd also like to know the high score for the speed. It would keep some of these guy stats for me. So I would keep it turned on. I knew where I was going, but I liked that information. But it came in handy. I, at least I thought it would come in handy one summer when we were traveling outside of Calgary on our way to Kelowna and we hit some construction. And so I thought, well, this thing does actually kind of route you through things as well. So I thought, well, let's use the map feature. And so I put where we were and I put the destination. Of course, it chooses the road I was already following because I know where I'm going. I'm a guy. I know what's happening. But then I hit the detour button because there was construction I wanted to get around. And I hit that button and all of a sudden... I didn't know how to understand what I was seeing because the, it takes me on this country road, so I thought, I'll trust it. So I turned down the country road. And I'm a little suspicious still, but I follow it for about a half hour. And if I reach the point where I know this isn't the right direction, there's something wrong, that, that, you know, because us guys, we know, right? We know when we're lost and when we're not lost. So I pulled over to double check, and I look at the full route. It was rooting me from where I was, Calgary, down into Montana, down to Idaho, through Washington, and then north to Kelowna. So it just confirms, ladies, that our guy sense is accurate. We know where we're going. We don't need directions. <laughs> but see, what had happened is my son Joshua, who has always loved electronics, who was about eight years old at the time, got into the settings, and he put it on bike mode. It was avoiding all major highways that you can't ride a bike on. 
And it found a way to loop me all the way around through backcountry roads and farmer's fields to still get to my destination. It would have been a beautiful journey, but I didn't have the seven days that it was going to take to get there by that mood. You see, the vehicle you choose makes a huge difference in your journey. The same is true in our journey with Jesus Christ. And connecting in relationships is the vehicle that God has designed for our discipleship journey. And the reason being is that relationships create these environments where discipleship happens best. You see, just as there's different makes and models of cars and vehicles, so too there are different types of environments where we can engage in relationship. Have you ever gone to a business conference or maybe to a missions fest or break forth, like one of these big conferences? You'll know that they have different settings for different levels of interaction. For example, you'll come into the main session where there'll be a speaker, and it's not, you know, it's larger scale, but not dissimilar than what we have here in the sanctuary, where there's a main speaker on a platform who's making a presentation. It's a place and an opportunity for sort of single directional learning to take place where you can download information that needs to be retained. And when we go to settings like that, we tend to sit in rows, just like we're doing right now. But when the main session's over, then we go to these breakout sessions where we break out into smaller groups and we start to discuss what was presented in the main session. We, we personalize it and apply it and, and process how it could work in our lives. And we tend to do that not in rows, we tend to do that in circles, around tables. See, the same is true in our discipleship, where our primary relationship is with Jesus Christ, where we need to have a place where we can gain knowledge and know more about him. But we also need a place where it's more of a relational environment where we can get into the circles with people and grow. We need to know and we need to grow in those different environments. But they're, they're not unrelated when it comes to our discipleship journey either. Because we need to understand that how we relate to God also affects how we relate to one another. And let me explain this to you. you know, John talks about this in 1 John uh, chapter 1 as he opens his letter. He says this, he goes, if we claim to have fellowship, this is a relationship, if we claim to have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in darkness, we lie, and we do not live out the truth. See, this word fellowship, here's what he's talking about. This word fellowship here, if you can trust my geeky Greek for another week here, is the word koinonia. And it speaks about two or more parties that are partakers of a common mind. Now, in this particular instance, this koinonia is referring to, to us and Jesus being in relationship and having a common mind. This idea of common mind. Perhaps you've, you've had a relationship or a friend in the past or a spouse where you're just in tune about everything. You can finish each other's sentences. You can anticipate needs. If, if they're hurt or upset about something, you may not know exactly what it is, but you probably have a pretty good inkling. You know, I, I was thinking about this the other day when Nadine and I were cooking dinner together. And, you know, we, we knew the recipe. We knew what we were going to have, what we are making. But both of us, without saying any words, were able to kind of divide up the different jobs and different steps each person was going to do. And, and we moved in the common kitchen space without having to bump into each other constantly. And we did all of this without minimal talking about the food, but instead it opened up space for us to have conversations about life and work. And the end result was... Dinner got made. We're, we're just sort of in tune with each other. Uh, you could say that we're on the same wavelength. We are partakers of the same mind in those situations. 
Well, this is saying the same thing can happen with us and God, but only if we're open with him. Meaning only if we're willing to share both our hopes and our fears, our victories and our failures, our joys and our letdowns. That's kind of what it means to live in the light. This idea is we bring ourselves from, from darkness, from hiddenness, from isolation, out into the open with God. The good things and the low things. And when we do this, we experience, we have these personal experiences with God as we come to know more about what it means to, to experience his grace and his love, his guidance and his correction in our lives. But then watch what happens. Watch what the Bible says happens. When, when, when we walk with him, when we live in light with him, the Bible says in the next verse, but if we walk in the light with, with Jesus as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, the Son, purifies us from all sin. See, these two things, the way we relate to God, the way we relate to other people, is not disconnected. What it's sort of saying here is that hiding does not create authentic relationships with God or with other people. It's like trying to make that cross-country journey in a car that's got no gas. It's not going to make it. And it's saying that if we're open, it's saying that if we're not willing to be open with God, who already knows everything about us anyways, according to Psalms 139, if we won't be open with him, why would we ever think that we'll be truly open with his people to whom we must reveal everything about ourselves? But it's saying that if we have koinonia with God, this openness and authentic biblical relationship with God, that is the basis for which we can have koinonia with his people. Open, authentic, biblical relationship with his people. And when that happens, we experience his grace. We experience his mercy. We experience his forgiveness for our sins. And we experience other people's support and encouragement and compassion and accountability. You see, Jesus shared who he was through word and deed. And when people accepted his message, he invited them then to connect. To connect with him in relationships so they would continually grow in their knowledge of him. But he also invited them to connect with others, other disciples. That is the context in which we would grow. And that's what we call the church. That relationship, that connectivity of his people is what we call the church. You see, the local church has always been God's primary environment for making disciples. It's where his people come to know about him. It's where they come to be with others to grow in him. Where they can come to be known by others and to be in community. And this has been modeled from us right from the very start. If you go back to the very first description of the very first church uh, in the book of Acts, the Acts, if you see the word Acts in your Bible, it means Acts of the Apostles, meaning this is what the Apostles did after Jesus ascended. The very opening of the Acts of the Apostles was they got into community. You see, if you start reading from the opening of the book of Acts, we see that Jesus ascends into heaven and he tells his followers to, to go and to wait for him together. 
And they do. And as they're waiting together in community, the Holy Spirit descends upon them as was promised. And we read about that in chapter 2. And it talks about how it was, it was noisy when this happened. When the Holy Spirit came and descended upon them, it says it was like a violent wind. Like a howling wind. You may have experienced that yesterday with the wind rattling the windows and howling down the streets a little bit. But this was so noisy that mixed with also the people talking in different languages and and praising God and and, and all this commotion that was happening, people down in the streets heard the noise. And they thought, those guys must be having quite the party up there. And then they looked at their wrist sundials and thought, it's only 9 a.m. These guys are redefining day drinking. To which Paul, uh, Peter came out and corrected them. Because remember, Peter was still learning, and one day he would teach, as we learned last week, that you've always got to be ready to give an answer. And this was Peter's first chance to give an answer, where he corrected them. He says, we're not day drinking, guys. So there's something else that's pretty awesome going on here, and he preaches an amazing sermon. And 3,000 people come to faith that day. And they come together in community, and they form the first church. And so from that, we can see that the first church in Jerusalem is formed of 3,000 new believers. 3,000 people who responded to the invitation to follow Jesus. Now, what do you do with a church of 3,000 people who are all new believers and about a dozen people who are going to lead them? Authentic community. We need them to know the relationship with God. We need them to grow in relationship with us. That's what they did. It's a description of the blueprint that we can follow. You see, as we've seen in First John already, the key to authentic relationships starts with coming to know more about Jesus. And in Acts 2, verse 42, it says this. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and, and to <clears throat> the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, the passage goes on from there to give a fuller description. I haven't got time to go into all of that today, but you can join us for Beyond the Message tomorrow night at 7 p.m., and we'll talk more about this passage then. Uh, But for today, just looking at this one introductory verse, it says, they joined to get themselves together. They devoted themselves to teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. I'm going to go through these four really quickly, these four spiritual activities that they engaged in really quickly, because this is how they took steps to draw themselves and others to a deeper knowledge of understanding of Jesus Christ. It started with teaching, which is a super important role when we're trying to know something about anything, in this particular case, Jesus. If we're going to grow in a deeper relationship with him, we need to know him. Now, we're not told what exactly they taught, but we can assume that it was things like, like the nature of salvation, the, the person, the work of Jesus, the aspects of living a Christian life. And this wasn't just for their own benefit, for themselves to grow in their knowledge. It was so they knew how to lead others as well, because they're in this together. And after all, wasn't that part of the Great Commission? We've been talking about the Great Commission a little piece by piece each week here, and it, it starts off with this idea that we need to make disciples. You know, go, as you're going along in your day, make disciples. And then Jesus gives a bit of the how when he says, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Jesus did a lot of teaching. There's a lot to learn, and so they engage in teaching. They engage in fellowship. This is that word koinonia again. We learned about that earlier, and we know from what I explained earlier, this isn't about just telling jokes over coffee. This is about being one in purpose and one in mind. Having that camaraderie where they're unified by one thing. And in the context of the church, that one thing that unifies them, the common unity is the Holy Spirit. 
that is within them and among them and had just descended upon them. And this is what inspires their corporate worship. And, and Paul talks a bit about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 where he says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. To the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with them all, binding them together in koinonia. It, it talked about the breaking of bread. This is sort of an extension of the koinonia, taking it to a step of worship. And when it talks about breaking bread here, it's not saying that they, they shared a sandwich over lunch. Okay? That's not what it's talking about here. This is a reference to the Lord's Supper. To saying when they came together, they had communion. So they could all together, in this unity of the Spirit, and this love of Christ, they could all together participate, remember, and affirm who it is they're worshiping and who it is they're learning about. Paul again talked about this in 1 Corinthians when he says, whenever you eat of this bread, drink of this cup, speaking of communion, he says, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. You're knowing, you're remembering, you're worshiping his death. Fourth one was prayer. The biggest thing for prayer, they, see, a lot of these people had a Jewish background and they would have had a very, very uh, well-established prayer life already. But what they really needed to learn about prayer is that they could address God as a personal God, as Abba Father, as Jesus modeled and as he taught them. We see this in the Lord's Prayer when Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this, pray our Father who art in heaven, holy be your name. See, this is this term of endearment and devotion. It's a term that's used by children who have a relationship with their father. And as a parent knows, you know your child's voice. You know your child's cry. And so they had to learn that when they pray, they're praying to a God who hears them and a God who answers them. Teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer. I go through those quickly, not because they're unimportant. These are so critical to our ability to grow in relationship with God. And if you're struggling with any of these four things or any other spiritual disciplines, let us know. We can help you with that. But I go through them quickly because I want to focus more upon the purpose behind them, more so than the description of them. You see, some people, hazard I say many people, view these types of things as chores. These are the daily Christian to-do list. I need to read my Bible. I need to pray. I need to spend some time in worship. It's a daily Christian to-do list. And when it's viewed that way, it's not very popular. And I think we know that there's low adherence at times when it's viewed in that fashion because it's just seen as our regular duty as a follower of Christ. But there's a bigger purpose behind it. So there's a bigger purpose behind why we learn, why we fellowship, why we worship, and why we pray. You see, when we say yes to the invitation to follow Jesus, these things help us move into the second part of our definition of being a disciple where we are changed to be like Jesus, where we grow more into his image all the time. This is sometimes referred to in theological circles, and here's your, your million-dollar theological word for the day, sometimes referred to as consecration. And consecration is the act of being associated with holiness. And it's related to the separation between the sacred and the common, in particular in relationship to God. Because Holiness is God's highest characteristic. 
And holiness exists within God in absolute purity and absolute perfection. You see, God's holiness shapes his love. His holiness shapes his mercy. His holiness even informs his anger and his wrath, which also are holy. And such a pure, powerful force as God's holiness is dangerous for the common to approach. Think of God's holiness as the sun. It is bright, it is powerful, it radiates heat and light throughout our solar system and all these good things. We like the heat, right? We're, we're kind of missing it right now. We like the heat. We like the light that the sun provides to us here on earth. But we also know the sun is dangerous. Even at this distance we have from the sun, too much exposure, we get a sunburn. But as we get closer and closer and closer, if you get too close, the sun will consume you. Because the common cannot stand in the midst of the power of the sun. You see, theologically, we see this lived out in the temple that existed in Jerusalem, where in the middle of the temple, there was what's called the Holy of Holies, which is where it said that God resided. And then as you move outward in the design of the temple, the further out you get, the closer to common we get. The closer you get, the more to holiness and sacred. But the further out, the more common. You even got far enough out, you get to the common court of the Gentiles, where everyone could kind of do business and live and go freely. But you get close. If you were common, not holy, it would consume you. So much so that the uh, priest who would go in there once per year, they would tie a rope around his foot in case he got too close, lacked purity, and God killed him. They could pull him back out with a rope. Because if you get too close to the holiness when you're common, it will consume you. See, this is God's highest characteristic, but it creates a problem for us because God desires for us to be in personal relationship with him, and we're not holy. And we can't make ourselves holy, and we can't achieve holiness on our own. When we try to do it, it's like trying to clean our windows at home with water from a mud puddle. The more you clean, the dirtier it just kind of looks. But God made a way. And he made a way through, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when we become associated with him, that becomes the means by which we have a solution to the problem. See, when we respond to Jesus' invitation to follow him, when we become associated with his victory and his forgiveness over death, hell, and the grave, we're then invited to live a, a life that is worthy of being in relationship with God. That's what Romans 12, 1 talks about, where it says, therefore, therefore, in light of God's salvation, in light of all that God did to bring you into relationship with him, therefore, your response is this, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's incredible mercy upon you, the fact that you are not consumed in his presence, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. See, the reason that we do these activities, uh, teaching and prayer and fellowship and, and worship, is we're striving to continually shape our lives to reveal Jesus to be more and more like him. So we're offering him our thoughts and our beliefs, our, our emotions, our activities, and allowing him to make them holy. In a practical sense, and the more that we do that with him, the more we can do it with others. And this may apply to you and your family. 
to the parents who have children, to those that you may be discipling, you can help them experience this then too. And it's a lifelong journey. While Jesus is the means and allows us to be in relationship with him, it is a lifelong journey of discovery, a lifelong journey of being changed into the image of Christ until that one day when we stand before him in glory. Until then, we continue the journey. And the place and the purpose where we start, remember, our relationship with God. But also that affects how we relate to others in the church. And so we can't ignore that aspect of this either. Because the people God brings us into into relationship with is part of our team that helps us to know and to grow. You see, when we gather in a group like this, there's a lot of people around. And an intimate may not be a word that we would use to describe what necessarily happens amongst us in this particular place or even in the foyer at times. And it's not that people are unfriendly or that people are, are mean or anything like that. It's, but really, when you, when you come into a church and if you talk to somebody in the foyer and you ask them, you know, how are you doing? Good. I'm doing well. Weather's good. Kids are good. Grandkids are good. A lot of positive things. Now, you take that same person and you sit them down at your kitchen table and ask them the same question, you'll get a different answer. You get more personal details. You'll get stories about their joys and about their worries. And it's not because people are trying to lie to us. It's not that people are bad. It's just that different environments inspire different levels of interaction. It's just it's human nature. And if we're really going to know and then grow in relationship with another person, we need to move from rows to circles. When we get into circles, we get to grow together a little better. You see, when we get in circles with fellow believers and into circles with trusted friends, it helps the process, it helps us to process what we are learning so that we can then apply it and grow in it. A story I read the other day about a guy named Tim who recently responded to Jesus' invitation and he gave his life to Christ. And then he joined a small group. Relationship with God, relationship with his people. And so Tim goes to Brandon's life group one night. But as he walks in, everyone in the room can tell that he's frustrated. He's got that frustrated look on his face and and his body language reveals it as well. And throughout the whole meeting, he's kind of tense and angry. He he didn't say or do anything that was off-putting for anybody, but you could just tell. That he was angry and, and tense. Well, after the group, Brandon asked him to hang back. And he says, well, what's, what's wrong? I could tell something was wrong tonight. And Tim says, you know, I'm, I'm just, I've been really upset about Sunday's sermon. And, you know, I've been thinking about it. And I've just decided I'm going to quit the whole Christian thing altogether. Now, shocked. Brendan thinks, i got to push a little deeper into this. So he does. And it turns out that the sermon that, that Tim was troubled by, the part of the sermon Tim was troubled by, was in, wasn't one of mine. Right? Somebody else. <laughs> the part of the sermon he was troubled by was when the pastor was talking about how men should be the spiritual leaders of their homes. And, and, and Tim was confused by this. And he was embarrassed and he was frustrated because he didn't disagree with it. But see, he grew up in a home where he didn't have a father. He had no idea how to do it, and yet he's being told that a good Christian father will do this. He's being told he needs to pray with his wife, and yet he's thinking, you know, a good Christian husband would do this. 
I should be doing devotions with my kids. A good Christian father would do this. I, I don't know how. And he was frustrated and angry and overwhelmed by this lesson that he didn't agree with but could not get beyond or process. Now, all this story actually is fiction. The struggle and the situation is real. For those who only connect on Sunday, for those who only connect in rows, this situation is all too real. You see, some people will, will continue on in the Christian faith and not walk away from it. But they'll reach a point where they'll sit in their rows and they will gradually learn enough theology. They'll, they'll gradually become familiar enough with enough ritual that they're comfortable. And they can just sort of spend a lifetime in the shallow end of faith and never press themselves to learn how to swim in the deep end with Jesus. But then there are others who get confused, who get frustrated who eventually stop attending and will walk away from the faith altogether. And when you ask them what went wrong, they'll say, well, I tried it, but you know, the Christian thing just wasn't for me. It just didn't work. And that's the path that Tom is on. See, he was already walking on that path towards resentment. And he was thinking, I should just quit the whole thing and, and, and move on. And if he had, not only would it be his own life that he was sacrificing, but the impact that it would have upon his wife and his kids as well. But fortunately, he had a life group. He had a group of men who believed and lived out the words we find in the book of Hebrews. Who says, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily. And he continues in chapter 10 where it says, and let us consider how we might spur one another on, on towards love and good deeds, don't give up meeting together as some of their habit of doing, but instead encourage one another. That's what his group did for him. Brendan came alongside and challenged him. Gave him hope that they could work through this together. John, another guy in the group, came alongside and asked permission to, to share some, uh, some, some tactics with him. And, and he said, absolutely. And so he then received specific ideas and, 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 and understand of how to have devotions with his kids. How to pray with his wife. Damon came along and shared his own fears that he had with praying with his wife, but how, how he, had, he had brought that into the light in his fellowship with God, and God had helped him to overcome that. And now he and his wife pray together regularly and daily. You see, connecting in relationship is the vehicle God uses, it's the vehicle he designed for our discipleship journey, where we connect with him in relationship, but we also need to connect with others. And that's how we know and we grow in Christ together. And I cannot stress this enough, how critical this is for our experience as followers of Jesus Christ. But I'm also well aware of how difficult it can be. So there's many people who, who are on site here or online who perhaps you can relate to me, where I, I'm what you would refer to as a learned extrovert. That means I understand that I need to have meaningful interactions and regular interactions with people in the world around me, in part because of my job. But my natural tendencies is towards introversion. Now, it doesn't mean I don't like people. It doesn't mean I don't like being in social gatherings. It just means that it drains me of energy. I, I get drained of energy by that. And there's a lot of people who are like me. And if you can relate with that, you, you know that people who have a bit of that tendency, they, they don't like risking being open with other people. Uh, all of us, to some degree, can understand that, well, this is hard to do because I'm busy and I don't know if I can prioritize all these relationships. I'm not sure I could commit to all of that. 
And that's, that's been there in a lot of lives for a lot of people for a long time. But then back in the spring, COVID was like this bowling ball that just rolled down and whatever pins you had managed to set up just got knocked over. Physical distancing. Limit your cohorts. That kind of flies in the face of a relationship, doesn't it? And we know it had an impact upon church. Like Sunday morning was affected by this significantly. We had to challenge all or cancel all of our connect groups and our life groups changed drastically in how they meet and who meets. Our community engagement events had to be canceled. A lot of Bible studies changed in format. You see, the primary ways, these are the primary ways that the church has historically helped people to know, grow, and show God's love. And it all got affected by this. But I think it also uncovered a flaw in the Western system of the way we do church. You see, it, reco- it uncovered a flaw that showed that we are so program-driven that people have not learned how to feed themselves. So that when some of these things are removed, they start to starve. See, studies have been done into this now. It's been going on long enough that studies have been done, and it's shown that people who are regular church attenders before COVID, okay, so people who showed up more often than not week after week to a local evangelical church, 48% of them have not engaged in a single online service or Bible study since the spring. Regular church attenders. Because the program was removed. Let me suggest this as well, though. What if along with all of COVID's challenges, it also presents opportunities. Is it possible God is using this season that we're sitting in right now to build up his people? Is it possible that we're extending our rows so they're not limited by the walls of this church, but we're extending our rows so that West Meadows at home currently, right now, literally reaches coast to coast? It reaches south of the border. And I just learned today, it's even reaching across the Atlantic Ocean to people who are tuning in to West Meadows at home. We've expanded the rows that exist through this. We've pressed into physical studies where we've been able to retain the traditional means by which people have engaged in relationship and and doing small group together. But we've added access to that through the online opportunities. Back in the spring, Nadine and I hosted a marriage session with, with a number of couples from the church, and, and I didn't know how well it was going to go because it was purely online. But as we got to meet and talk to the couples who engaged in that, we found out that it wouldn't have happened unless it was online. Because so many of those young families had kids they had to look after and babysitters, and, and how do we navigate all that and leave home at 7 o'clock to go to the church for a study and we've got all this going on? But because they could take it into the homes, we were able to do this study with all these young families and we grew and learned more about marriage and God's plan for marriage. We've been able to offer a, a, a youth group option each week. We have Beyond the Message that presses from this environment into a small group situation to learn here, but then to apply on Monday nights through Beyond the Message. And in January, we have more things we're going to be offering through that, through that form and through that media. See, I think all the challenges that come with this season of life, it also gives us opportunities because it's forcing people to take more initiative. It's moving beyond the programs to have people take more initiative for their own spiritual growth where they need to read, they need to study, they need to pray on their own so they can grow in that relationship with God in ways that they've never had to do before. It's caused them to press into their family environments, their, their primary spiritual relationships and grow and know God better in that context. I, I think it's a time of refining. 
Now, I know that as we change these things, as these things are, as we're adapting and innovating in the midst of the season, and I know there are people who are going to say no, and they're going to fall away. And that's never the hope, that's never the desire, and that's not what anybody wants or prays for. But I also know there are people who say yes, and the end result of the yes will be that people have a stronger faith, a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ, and a better understanding of what it means to be a follower of Christ, to be changed by Christ, and to be committed to the mission of Christ. See, God's primary vehicle for discipleship is relationships. Even when they're hard to do, it still remains the primary vehicle. He wasn't taken off guard by the season that we're in right now. And he can still use it to grow us and refine us. Are you in relationship with him? If you don't have that personal relationship with Jesus Christ in your life right now, I, I encourage you to press into that, to say yes to the invitation to submit your life to him because he gave his life for you. Are you in relationship with others? Even in the difficult season we find ourselves right now where we have to respect and follow the precautions that are given to us. There's still ways that we can be in relationship with others, that we can have our lives shaped in the context of Christian community as we press into these primary relationships and grow more in Christ. Let me pray for us in these things. I invite you to stand with me as I, as I close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not foiled or stymied or taken off guard by anything. That even in the midst of challenges that we have in, in, in our communities and, and even within our own lives, that God, you're there with us. That we can have a relationship with you where we can experience you. We can bring these challenges and these uncertainties into the light. And you'll guide us, Lord. I, I pray that for those who are feeling that, that urging to, to say yes to your invitation for them to follow you, to say yes to Jesus, who out of love put his self upon the cross to die for their sins. God, I pray those people who are feeling that sense, that urging, that they would respond to that now. And that they and all of us will continue to understand what does it mean to press into, to connect deeper with you in our lives, in the world around us. And God, I pray for all of us here too. It's, it's hard. It's hard as a leader. It's, it's hard as a person of this church as hard as a follower of Christ in these days to know how do we have a relationship with each other God I believe you are unwavering in the importance of that for our lives so God I pray you'll give us wisdom to navigate that so that it will still exist and thrive within our walk our journey with you and with one another Lord we ask for your help in these things knowing that if it is indeed your vehicle and is your journey and is your destination, that you will be there with us and you have answers to these questions. Help us to be sensitive to your response, Lord, and to be responsive to how you guide us.